Last 5% Media. On this podcast, we discuss details of crimes that are often violent in nature. In addition, historical audio and original interviews include outdated language to describe sex workers. Listener discretion is advised. I have to do everything I can to get Angela Bono and to devote my entire life to do everything I possibly can to give my life so that nobody else hopefully won't follow my footsteps. That's Kenneth Bianchi, the security guard who confessed to murdering 12 women, two in Bellingham, Washington, and 10 in Los Angeles, between October 1977 and January 1979. Bianchi agreed to testify truthfully against his cousin, Angelo Bono, on the 10 Los Angeles murders. In exchange, Bianchi avoided the gas chamber in two states. He would go along with everything, taking Yolanda off the street, killing her, dumping the body. LAPD detective Bill Williams interviewed Bianchi in the Whatcom County, Washington jail. The transcript of the interview became People's Exhibit Number 900. Mr. Bianchi, Williams asked, did you kill Yolanda Washington? Yes, I did, he replied. Williams showed Bianchi a photo of Yolanda. Yes, that's her. She was in the the front seat, and uh, I walked up to the car, opened the door, and got in, and we used the police officer ruse. In Bianchi's version, Bono was calling the shots. He was just following along. He said he looked at his cousin's face in the rearview mirror, and Bono drew his finger across his throat. While driving on the freeway, she was strangled uh, on the floor of the car. That matched the wounds documented in Yolanda's autopsy. But other key details Bianchi shared didn't match what Detective Williams had seen. He said they put... I think it was logs on top of the body to hide it. Bianchi said he and Bono had covered Yolanda with some type of log, but Detective Williams didn't see anything like that at the site. He was pretending to help, and I just got the impression he would go so far and and then make it so it, it wouldn't fly. He thought he was the smartest guy in the room, and he was going to play with it. I'm Joseph Fredota. I first encountered the Hillside Strangler case 30 years ago in my former career as a political opposition researcher. In this podcast, I revisit 10 homicides that terrorized Los Angeles in 1977 and 1978 and the longest murder trial in U.S. history. Two of the finest prosecutors in the office came to me and said that their major witness had fallen apart. Tragedy is definitely part of our life, part of the history, but there's got to be something bigger and better. He said, I know you. You're just like me. From Last 5% Media, this is Hillside. Chapter 5, Unwinnable. I'm Veronica Wallace. I'm an artist and a writer, and I have somewhat of a checkered past. In 1979, Veronica Wallace was living in the San Fernando Valley, 
She was Veronica Compton at the time, working in the film and television industry. I was a Hollywood producer. I worked as a screenwriter. And I'm studying with Strasberg, Lee Strasberg, in the master classes. She was climbing the Hollywood ladder. Well, I was a writer of music and love stories and happy stories. I wanted to write about little orphan children during World War II that were being adopted and loved and cared for and, you know, romance, you know, love stories, sweet things. Her career wasn't taking off. And the people that were in the industry that were big movers and shakers, they said, Veronica, lovely scripts, but no one's buying this. There was no market for them. They told her she should write about crime. The more violent, the better. Stories about killers, that's what people are buying right now. You need to get your focus changed if you want to be successful in Hollywood. One night, she was hanging out with her boyfriend, an executive with a Hollywood studio, watching the local news. One particular evening, we're doing a lot of coke. We'd go through an ounce within 24 hours. On television, she saw the man who had just pleaded guilty to five of the Hillside Strangler murders, Kenneth Bianchi. It was in a courtroom setting and he's speaking to the judge, and the camera is a full face, medium shot, and he has curly brown hair, a mustache, clean shaven, wearing a suit. To even begin to try and live with myself, I have to take responsibility for what I've done. And he has tears in his eyes. He looks like a penitent 12-year-old boy, someone that I had seen in my catechism class. She got an idea and turned to her boyfriend. I said, I'm going to get an interview with Ken. And sure enough, I did. Here we are about 35 years after the conclusion of the proceedings and that there is still such a heightened interest in it. This is Ronald George. He became a judge in 1977, the year the Hillside Stranglers began their killing spree. Four years later, he presided over the trial of Angelo Bono, Bianchi's accomplice in the murders of 10 women. I have the impression, maybe I heard something to this effect, that I was assigned the case because I had the background of being a deputy attorney general, and they probably thought, well, there are going to be a lot of complicated legal issues here. As George prepared to take the case, a senior judge on the same court, someone who'd been around a long time, pulled him aside and offered some personal advice. Well, Ron, uh, you're undertaking here a trial that's expected to last a year. He said, this is going to be quite an ordeal. And he said, I've seen the physical, mental, and emotional health of some of our colleagues destroyed by some of these mammoth trials. If you have an exercise program of any sort, uh, I really recommend that. George didn't think he would have the time or flexible schedule to go to a gym or join a team sport. So he took up running. It didn't start well. Tried to run half a mile, and I was kind of out of breath. But he kept at it. He began each day with an early run around his neighborhood. Not 
an early riser except by necessity. He'd eat breakfast with his family and battle rush hour traffic to get to the courthouse in downtown Los Angeles by 9 a.m. Probably didn't allow myself too much extra time. Running became an obsession that outlasted the Bono trial. George ran the New York and Boston marathons before his 50th birthday. It's what got me through the trial physically, I can assure you, and emotionally. Big-time people in the industry, film industry, that are telling me, you've got to break, you got to break that glass ceiling. You've got to do something original and unique. So that's what I did. Veronica Compton took the advice of friends in the film and television industry and started working on a script about a serial killer. The twist? The killer was a woman. It's the story of the female serial killer that studies criminology at UCLA. And she is very disturbed. Her mother's schizophrenic and yada yada. It's a very sad story. She felt confident this script would stand out among the crime stories piled high on every Hollywood producer's desk. Because that would have edge. Men were writing about male serial killers, but no one had yet written about a woman doing a crime like that. It was unheard of. She showed her script to a few friends working in the industry. They liked it and told her she was onto something. They were enthralled. They thought it was innovative. They thought it was dangerous. She kept revising that script and sending it around for feedback. Then she saw Kenneth Bianchi on the evening news. How could he possibly be a murderer that killed innocent women? I, I just couldn't wrap my brain around it. He wasn't the oily, grubby-looking, dirty man, you know, that grabs little children. He was the total opposite. He was a normal-looking, handsome even, innocent, innocent-looking young man. Veronica made a plan to meet Bianchi and get his story. My goal was to get the interview and to sell it for, you know, a lot of money. She introduced herself in a letter to him. And I said, look, I'm a fiction writer, and I'm a Christian, and I feel terrible about your situation. And if I can offer any form of support, you know, I would like that. From newspaper accounts, she knew Bianchi couldn't talk about the case. The judge had imposed a gag order. So Veronica tried to reassure the confessed killer that she only wanted to learn more about him, to get insights for the script she was writing about her female protagonist. Although I'm a writer, it's all fiction, so I'm not looking at you for an interview, which, of course, wasn't true. Bianchi wrote back and opened the door, just a crack. And I sent him some of my acting brochures and modeling brochures, which were, you know, beautiful photos of me that you send out to your agents and your producers and so forth. They exchanged more letters. His became emotional, intense, and sexual. The scheme was working just as Veronica had planned. We start developing this relationship over letters, and it's quickly escalating into him fantasizing about me being a girlfriend and 
I playing along with that whole scenario. And so I'm thinking I'm going to manipulate him. I'm going to get the inside scoop. He's, you know, he's so one day he calls and he, he calls us and says, I'd like to get a visitor put on my visitor's list. I'd like to create a visitor's list. This is retired L.A. County Sheriff's Detective Pete Finnegan. He had got a letter from this gal named Veronica Compton. So we go over there and talk to him. We look at the letter and it's just a typical, like a lonely hearts thing. There's a lot of females out there that have a thing for killers that are in prison for some reason. I don't know why. Some of them even get married to them. So we get her information and we run a background check on her. And she'd been arrested for drunk driving some years prior and had no other record or anything. So we figured, okay, no, no harm. You know, it'll keep him happy. So we tell him, put her on the visiting list. Veronica checked in at the guard station in the L.A. County Jail, where Bianchi remained through his cousin's trial. So I go up an elevator with the guard escort. They take me into another room and big thick glass doors, probably bulletproof, and lots of windows. Because Bianchi was a high profile inmate, guards were careful not to expose him to any other inmates who might try to kill him. And there's an identical seat opposite you through this glass, this large glass window, which is Uh, about three and a half feet by four feet tall on the table. So you can see each other. Veronica met Bianchi in person for the first time. He looked and acted like the man she'd seen months earlier on the evening news. And he's there looking at me through the glass, putting his hands against the glass to touch, you know, me and saying, I am so sorry. I had no idea what happened. And then I found out and now I just ruined my life and I, I feel like such a bad person. You know, the whole She'd read all about the Hillside Strangler case, about his claim that he had more than one personality, that some other entity inside him had committed these terrible crimes. And to be honest with you, I kind of fell into that bag where I, he captivated me and I believed that he really was this genuine multiple personality, that um, he had no idea what he had done. They met again, then every week, then every day. Her friends in the movie business pressured her for updates. Well, did you get any of the scoop? It's like, no, no. Veronica grew frustrated. She wanted him to open up, to talk about his crimes, so she could sell his story to a national magazine. I thought, how am I going to crack him to finally get him to talk about the murders? Because everything we're talking about is superficial. It's nothing, and months are going by, and I'm wasting my time. She sent him a copy of her script in progress about a female serial killer. The next time they met at the jail, his demeanor had changed. And I see him through the glass, and he's smiling, and he sits down, and he's so happy and so smug, big smile. He said, I know you. And I said, excuse me, what do you mean? He said, I know you. You're just like me.
Uh, I would not tell them how to try the case. I'd see them periodically, but you know these were people with long experience who knew what they were doing. District Attorney John Vandekamp assigned two prosecutors to handle the trial of Angelo Bono. The lead prosecutor was Roger Kelly. LAPD Chief Daryl Gates later wrote that the case against Angelo Bono would have to be carefully woven together, thread by thread, very skillfully. Deputy DA Roger Kelly, Gates wrote, was not the man to do it. Decades later, Kelly still gets mixed reviews. Here's the lasting impression he made on Frank Salerno from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Roger handles a lot of murder cases. He was... He was maybe not the most organized. This is Robert Filibosian. He succeeded John Vandekamp as district attorney of Los Angeles. He was known as working up a case and then settling it and move on to the next one. As district attorney, John Vandekamp delegated key decisions to the prosecutors who worked for him. I would simply make sure as an experienced prosecutor, usually chosen by the division head uh, that had responsibility for the case. And I would stay out of their their business. He later recalled handling a single high-profile prosecution a different way. The only case that's the exception to that was the so-called Hillside Strangler. On a Saturday morning in December 2019, the psychologist Lois Lee emailed Mika Mercado, the daughter of Yolanda Washington. Hi, Mika. Yes, we will help you. I knew your mother. She was a Mika had found Lee's name in a newspaper article from 1977 and reached out to her for information. Lee wrote back with what she remembered about Yolanda and made an introduction to someone else she thought could fill in any gaps. I have copied Joe Redota on this email. He is producing a pod series, including your mom, and he has done a lot of research on her life. He will help you, and you can trust him. Mika didn't know anything about me, beyond what Dr. Lee wrote in her email. Of course, I, at first I was like, here's just somebody else, you know, just going to write another book, or it's coming out with something else. She wondered whether I was just another in a long line of writers who would focus on the killers, ignore the victims and their families, and label her mother as just a prostitute. It's going to be the same thing. It's going to be talking about these guys um, from their perspective, uh, giving them another platform, and just kind of just felt like it was going to be the same scenario. Mika thanked Lee for answering her email and told me she'd appreciate any help I could offer. It's been heartbreaking for me, she wrote. There are so many books, movies, and documentaries that talk about my mother and use her image. No one has ever contacted me for permission or approval, she added. I just was like, okay, what's, you know, this person's angle? I was defensive initially. I wrote back. I told her I was deeply sorry for her loss, and I offered to answer any questions she might have. I do have a lot of questions, she replied. It bothered her, she explained, that people had profited from the Hillside Strangler case, writing books and making documentaries that she felt 
trivialized her mother's life. I could not live with myself, she wrote, if I allowed myself to remain silent. I couldn't see it being from any other perspective because that's all that I've been used to and used to seeing. You know, it was like, what do you have to gain from it? I created a schizophrenic mother that was highly abusive to the daughter, and um, the daughter was sexually repressed and really, really badly repressed and um, labeled a slut by her mother. And, you know, the mother would throw knives at her, saying, you're nothing but a dirty whore. Veronica Compton shared with Kenneth Bianchi a copy of her draft script about a woman serial killer. And um, the daughter internalizes it all, and so she becomes a serial killer. After he read the script, he told her they had something in common. He said, you know, people like us, we understand. We're like the wolves of society. And everyone else, they're the lambs. We eat the lambs. She played along, still hoping he'd share his story. So I'm lying, pretending like I'm like him so that he'll tell me, why do people do these horrible crimes? She posed a question to the man on the other side of the glass in the L.A. County Jail. Why? Why did you do it? He thought for a moment. Then, through the phone in the visitor's room, he answered. He said, well, imagine this, Veronica. Imagine going to the best candy store ever, walking in that candy store, seeing all the candies that you want, knowing you can take any out of any of those jars. Take whatever candy you want. You don't have to pay for them. A few days later, Veronica was at home. The phone rang. Mrs. Bianchi was on the line, calling from Rochester. And she tells me that it's Ken Bianchi's mother, and she wanted to thank me for coming forward with the truth at last because she always knew he was innocent, and that now that I was strong enough to let everyone know the truth, that he was with me so he couldn't have done the murders, that she was just very grateful and she wanted me to come to her home, have dinner with her and meet her. And she sent me flowers. Veronica went back to see Bianchi at the county jail. And I am livid. I said, what? Why did you lie like that? He said, Veronica, she's dying. I told you she's a dying woman. Think about it. That's This is her only dream, is to have her son innocent. And I couldn't have her die on her deathbed thinking that I was a serial killer. So I lied, and I said that you were giving me the alibis, that you knew all about the murders, and that you had been with me during those times. And, and Bono had actually set them all up and tried to frame me. But you knew the truth. Shortly after that, a detective from the Los Angeles Police Department called Veronica. He said Bianchi's mother claimed Veronica could provide an alibi for her son. And 
Bianchi calls me and says, you can get out of this, you can get out of this, it's going to be okay, it's all going to be okay. The next time they met in person, Bianchi offered her a deal. You know you want to sell my story, and I'm going to give you all the rights to my story. You'll get a million dollars off the story. You have exclusive rights. It was exactly what she'd hoped for ever since she reached out to him months before. So now I'm looking at a lot of money, a break for my career. In exchange, she needed to do something for him. He has prepared notes what I'm supposed to do. Bianchi wrote his instructions on pieces of paper he'd show Veronica when they met in the visitor's room at the county jail. She copied his instructions into her notebook. That way there was no audio record of their conversations. He instructed Veronica to fly to Bellingham, Washington, go to a specific bar, and meet a young woman. And basically seduce her with drugs, get her to go to my hotel room, and then I'm supposed to strangle her and make it look like a man did it, like Bianchi. It was a crazy scheme, but she didn't say no. Oh, and here's the worst part. Oh, God, I even, I just cringe about this. The sheriff's department allowed Veronica to bring books into the jail for Bianchi to read. Los Angeles County Sheriff's Detective Pete Finnegan. And then the next visit, he gives it back to the deputy and says, you know, can you return this to uh, Miss Compton? I thoroughly enjoyed it, blah, blah, blah. So the deputy gives it back to her. Well, in one of the books that he returned, he's talking to me on the phone and he said, go to the end of the book and you know where the book binding is? I said, yeah. He said, now open it up. I said, what? He said, open it. What follows is going to get technical and, well, a bit gross. Before DNA testing, forensic investigators were severely limited in what they could learn from semen left at a crime scene. Some men left a trace of blood in their semen, but Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono were non-secretors. That meant the crime lab couldn't identify their blood type from their semen. Back to Veronica. So I opened it up, and there was part of a rosary cord that one of the nuns had given him. She pulled on the cord, and something came out of the spine of the book. A finger, um, a finger from a plastic glove, and he put his semen in it. So his plan was that I was supposed to use his semen and plant it on the victim. And uh, he's going to commit a murder and plant this sperm sample in the vagina of the victim to show that the uh, hillside strangler, who is a non-secretor, is still out there on the loose. I threw it away. I flushed it down the toilet. I couldn't. Still, she agreed to follow Bianchi's other instructions. On the afternoon of September 19, 1980, Veronica checked into the Shangri-La Motel in Bellingham, Washington. She put on a dress and stuffed some padding around her midsection so she'd look several months pregnant, then headed to a bar.
On July 2, 1981, Deputy District Attorney Roger Kelly sent his boss, John Vandekamp, a memo outlining problems with each of the 10 homicide counts against Angelo Bono. Kelly identified several problems with Yolanda Washington's case. In Bellingham, Bianchi said Bono had dropped him off at a gas station in Hollywood, then returned 20 to 30 minutes later with Yolanda in the car. She was picked up by Angelo and then took her to uh, a spot where I had been dropped off uh, by a gas station. He pulled up and she was in the, the front seat and uh, I walked up to the car and opened the door and got in. This conflicted with the eyewitness account of Ron Lemieux. He watched what appeared to be a police-type arrest from the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Detroit Street. Bianchi also said he killed Yolanda in the back seat of his cousin's car. She and I ended up in the back seat while driving on the, on the freeway. She was strangled uh, on the floor of the car. In another version of the story, Bianchi said he drove while Bono killed her. Kelly's memo described similar problems with the other murders. Five days later, Kelly called Bianchi to the stand as a witness. It was a disaster. In the morning, Bianchi testified he had no independent recollection of the murders. He said his knowledge about them came from police reports his court-appointed lawyer had showed him, or from photographs Angelo Bono had showed him, or from his own imagination. In the courtroom that afternoon, Bianchi changed his story again. The New York Times reported that Bianchi calmly described all the killings in detail. Kelly told the Los Angeles Times, you can say that this case is in trouble. He added that his boss, District Attorney John Vandekamp, would decide over the next few days what to do. I followed his notes, went to where he told me to, picked up the girl. Veronica Compton met a young woman in a bar in Bellingham, Washington. Veronica introduced herself as an actress from Dallas. They lingered over drinks for several hours. She invited the woman to her motel. Once inside the room, Veronica picked her moment and attacked. The woman later told Bellingham detectives that Veronica strangled her almost to the point of unconsciousness twice before she broke free. When the woman returned to the motel room sometime later with a male companion, Veronica had vanished. I guzzled some more alcohol, did more coke, woke up in the morning and I realized I had a flight back to Los Angeles. Veronica handed a cassette tape to a clerk in the Bellingham International Airport. She gave the clerk a $5 tip with instructions to mail the tape to local police. Then she flew back to Los Angeles. Weeks before, Bianchi had dictated the script for this cassette. Veronica found a friend, a fellow actor, to read the lines while she made a recording. Says, you know, that the hillside strangler is still out there on the loose, that you've got the wrong man, and blah, 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 blah. L.A. County Sheriff's Detective Pete Finnegan. Bellingham calls and says they've got an almost dead girl in a motel room that uh, managed to fight off her assailant. Veronica booked her hotel room using an alias, Cindy Wasser, but she rented a car using her real name. The next day, detectives from Bellingham and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department arrested Veronica at a trailer park in Carson, California. They searched her trailer. 
lo and behold, she has scripts made out of various things where she was going to travel around with these sperm samples, commit murders, and plant the uh, sperm samples in the vaginas of the people, that, the gals that she killed. They told Veronica that Bianchi had attempted to get other women to provide him with an alibi. And they said that you're the third woman he's done this to. The third. You just took it further than the other two. At the L.A. County Jail, Finnegan confronted Bianchi and told him his scheme had unraveled. He goes back to being, oh, well, you know, like it was a good try. One of the first things Mika Mercado says about herself is that she's a mother. I have a brilliant uh, 21-year-old son. As Mika raised him, she thought about her own mother, Yolanda Washington. Mika was two and a half years old when Yolanda became the first victim of the Hillside Strangler. I went through an angry phase, like, it's her fault she died because she wasn't at home and she wasn't doing what she was supposed to do, you know what I mean? And then it's like when I had my son, and I was like, wow, that, like, changed my perspective on a lot because that's when I wish she was around the most, not having a mom, like, for my first child being born and not knowing what to do with him and not having anyone to call for In October 2019, Mika began her search for information about her father, Emilio Mercado, and her mother, Yolanda Washington. Mika's son played a role in convincing her, after all these years, to make that journey. I don't want my son to feel such a disconnect from family, which he does. When he speaks of family, he he speaks of it as in my mother's grandmother or my mother's cousin. He never speaks in relation to himself. And that bothers me a lot because um, he has no connection to family outside of myself. And um, him having the memories of just the family just being tragedy, I didn't want him to even have the thought of his grandmother just being a victim of the hillside stranglers or his grandfather being shot by his best friend. Like, I just didn't want it to just stop there. Tragedy defined Mika's life. She didn't want it to mess up her son's. You know, I've got to change something, you know. Got to break the cycle, break the chains. I don't want it to be... I mean, tragedy is definitely part of our our life, you know, part of the history, but there's got to be something bigger and better. It's got to be changed, you know, somewhere down the line, somewhere. My lawyers had come to me and said, we don't think we have enough. The major witness has gone south. District Attorney John Vandekamp met with prosecutors in his office. Deputy DA Roger Kelly recommended dropping all 10 murder charges against Angelo Bono. Two of the finest prosecutors in the office came to me and said that uh, their, their major witness, they believe, had fallen apart, could not be trusted. LAPD Chief Daryl Gates summoned detectives to his office and asked them whether, if they had more time, 
they could develop additional evidence to strengthen the case against Angelo Bono. They replied, absolutely not. If anything, they told the chief, further delay would undermine the evidence they already had. Gates put in a call to Vandekamp. I'm giving this to you like a father and a friend, Gates said. I really think you need to look at this much more deeply. I believe you need to go over this case yourself because the facts are there. My name is Kurt Livesey. I am a retired deputy district attorney from Los Angeles County, California. Kurt Livesey worked 34 years in the L.A. County District Attorney's Office until he retired in 1991. When I saw that paperwork, or maybe some of his uh, paragraphs there indicated it wasn't winnable, uh, I sort of shuddered when I saw that. Livesey felt prosecutor Roger Kelly placed too much of the case in the hands of a single witness, Kenneth Bianchi. We have a witness who's recanted. Happens all the time. Even if Bianchi were telling the truth consistently, prosecutors still needed to corroborate his testimony with other evidence. Angelo Bono was facing the death penalty, and under California law, a jury cannot convict a murderer in a capital case based solely on the accomplice's testimony. Evidence has to back that up. Whether there's enough evidence, Livesey explains, is up to the jury. Here's the reason. It's not whether it's winnable. It's whether, based on having a reasonable and fair fact uh, finder, based on all the evidence that's admissible in light of the anticipated defense, would the reasonable fact finder find the defendant guilty? As chief deputy, Livesey supervised every death penalty case the district attorney's office handled. Did about a thousand of those between 1979 and 1991. On the morning of July 13, 1981, on behalf of the L.A. County District Attorney, Roger Kelly filed a motion to dismiss all 10 murder charges against Angelo Bono. Their conclusion is that there's no case against Angelo Bono. Kelly told the judge that murder charges against Bono cannot be predicated on the evidence now in existence and should be dismissed. It could not successfully prosecute Bono because the key witness against him, his cousin Kenneth Bianchi, had compromised himself as a credible witness. Kelly said the DA's office would proceed on a handful of other charges, including rape and false imprisonment. But he acknowledged that even if convicted on all those counts, Bono would walk free in five years. I showed Livesey a copy of the motion Roger Kelly submitted to the court that day. Okay. So the next document is dated July 13th, 1981. Yes, you, you did supply me that. So this is the document that was filed with the court right. in which uh, district attorney's office moves to dismiss the murder charges. Right. And uh, it's signed by you, Roger. The document has three signatures. Roger Kelly, the lead prosecutor. Jim Hines, his deputy and Kurt Livesey, the chief deputy district attorney. Except... Well, no, it isn't. It's my name, and uh, the writing uh, that appears to be writing above it isn't my name. In the space reserved for the chief deputy district attorney, another lawyer had signed off. Livesey supervised every capital case in the DA's office, except the case of Angelo Bono. Did you talk to Mr. Vandekamp about it at any never, point? Never talked with him about it. You know, we looked at the case and 
went through the file, and I finally decided to take that course. John Van de Kamp was so confident the judge would go along, a spokesman for the DA's office prepared a statement. Kenneth Bianchi's testimony with respect to the killings has deteriorated, the statement read. The prosecution could no longer, in good faith, argue his credibility to the jury, much less vouch for it. The prosecution has moved to dismiss the homicide charges. This morning, Superior Court Judge Ronald George granted the motion. To me, the test, you know, had to be whether the case should go forward to a jury, not for me to second guess, well, is the jury going to convict or not? This is Judge Ronald George, who presided over the trial of Angelo Bono. The interesting aspect of it to me is that um, the motion is routinely granted uh, when it's prosecutor's motion to dismiss his or her case. The judge took a week to analyze all the evidence, mountains of it. A week later, he returned to the courtroom. L.A. Sheriff's Detective Frank Salerno was there that day. And we, we were in court. We went over there to, to listen to it, see what the hell was going on. So was Detective Bill Williams from the LAPD. I remember that everybody was in the office was pissed off, and even other DAs that uh, talked to the, the morning of the court hearing, they were upset with Kelly. So I showed up. Again, Judge Ronald George. If you've got a case with 10 or more bodies and the community terrorized, even if it's quite difficult, you go forward as long as there's a sufficient amount of evidence. The district attorney's motion overlooked the testimony of Ron Lemieux. He'd identified Kenneth Bianchi as the man he saw outside his music shop in Hollywood, pushing Yolanda Washington into a car. The motion also failed to mention the middle-aged neighbor who saw two men abduct Lauren Wagner from her car late one night. Totally apart from, you know, Bianchi, there was sufficient corroboration. Dismissal of the 10 murder charges against Angelo Bono, the judge concluded, would not be in furtherance of justice. The district attorney's motion to dismiss these charges is hereby denied. Reporters raced from the courtroom to file their stories. LAPD Detective Bill Williams returned to headquarters and gave Police Chief Daryl Gates the news. It's a whole new ball game. Hillside is a production of Last 5% Media. This podcast was created, written, and hosted by me, Joseph Rodota. Our executive producers are Chris George and Joaquin Alvarado. Caitlin Bruce is our producer. Adam Melian is our research director. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Julie Checkaway and Robert Saladay served as consulting producers. 
Our sound engineers are Jeremy Dalmas and Craig Thomas. Craig is also our composer. Edgar Guerra designed our logo and website. Special thanks to the Center for Inquiry Libraries in Buffalo, New York, the Hoover Institution Archive at Stanford University, the Mainsfield Library at the University of Montana, and the Warnicke Ranch Artist Residency. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information about this episode, visit our website, hillsidepodcast.com. And thanks for listening.